This is the Dungeon Master's Handbook. also known as Chicago Wiz, and thanks for listening. This episode, I'm going to talk about assumptions and expectations that we often have about the rules and the ways things should work in the games that we play. And then I'll answer two call-ins. So in the past two weeks, I've had some neat little discoveries for myself and some discussion with players in both my OD&D and AD&D campaigns about things that I've found that kind of go against the assumptions or the uh, expectations that we've had when playing these games. Um, First, I'll talk about AD&D, and specifically on how to make potions. Now, in the module that you may have, if you have modules and whatnot, um, you know, Creation of potions is, you know, either hand-waved or it's made a function of just, you know, spending gold and having some time, um, or, or it's just not really delved into, you know, and, and especially it's been my experience in the later games, there's an expectation of having the old magic shop, which has potions of all types, you know, neatly lined up like you might find on the soda shelves in, in your local grocer. That's not necessarily the case. Now, my campaign in AD&D First Edition has been fairly low magic, um, and the players typically get their healing potions through finding them or from purchasing them from the dominant religious hierarchy that's present in my campaign. Um, except now, the uh, player for the highest level cleric that I have a in in my game. Her uh, pagan priestess wants to start making healing potions. So, you know, I open up my Dungeon Master's Guide and see what they say. And so there's a pretty comprehensive approach to how to make potions in the Magical Research section. And of course, this all is based on how Gary Gygax wanted to do it in Greyhawk and then translated it to AD&D. And so the procedure is, you know, you hire an alchemist, you expend gold time uh, spell components, or in the case of clerical-based potions, like a healing potion, uh, you can use bits and pieces of sacred relics or clothing, and voila, a potion is made. And I found that kind of interesting, that it's much more of a involved process than just, say, like a um, holy water, where you build a font and ta-da, you get holy water. Now, I don't know how many other campaigns get into the details of finding hirelings like uh, an alchemist, but you know, since this is going to be done a little bit remotely, I thought this would be neat as a two-step approach. Well, first off, the priestess has no idea how to make potions because simply there's no documentation from the pagan religion that she's involved with in how to do this. And uh, the... Um, the local dominant religion, known as the Light, is not going to necessarily tell her how to do it. So she went to find an alchemist. Uh, then she has to persuade them to come to her home base, which is, you know, happens to be a town that's threatened by war, so it might take a little persuading, um, and then set them up with a laboratory. 
Now, I had this uh, headhunting or maybe hireling hunting process managed by the Merchants Guild for a you know, low, low price of 300 gold. Um, and, and then it was a function of time. I would check every week to see if a prospective alchemist had been found. And when it did, then they wrote a letter back to the priestess uh, introducing themselves and offering up for the job. And so after some back and forth and one rejected uh, uh, offer, since the alchemist decided that they didn't want to work for a pagan, a alchemist by the name of Myron shows up at the temple. Now, what's interesting here is that as Myron and the priestess have talked, is that the uh, player has learned that potions aren't going to get quite churned out much like the way they thought, especially since the priestess is not yet 7th level. And that's a requirement that comes from AD&D. Uh, it's a Greyhawk requirement, but I kind of like it. Uh, makes sense that, you know, you, you need to channel quite a bit of divine energy in order to be able to uh, instill some sort of power into the mixture of ingredients that becomes a potion. And so since they're not seventh level, it's going to be a function of extra gold and extra time just to be able to make those potions. And so we're having an interesting discussion slash negotiation on what that looks like. So more to come, but it's just neat that the expectation of, you know, what goes into a potion is something that you can tune to your campaign, which I'm doing to mine, again, low magic. Um, but it's also something that I think not a lot of people think about. And so there's the expectation that, oh, it should be easy to do, bada bing, wave your hands, and there's a potion. And it's actually a little more involved in that. And, and I like diving into that detail. So a second and much more quick uh, expectation, assumption to explain, that a player and I had to talk about was in my OD&D campaign for my Dungeon 23 Mega Dungeon. Um, and I actually got this idea by listening to Daniel Norton of the Bandits Keep podcast, which is that in the original three OD&D booklets, all spellcasters must have spell books. All spellcasters includes clerics. And that's very interesting because the expectation from AD&D and from BX and, and further on is that spellcasters are imbued their power of miracles from their deity. But in OD&D, at least the original three books, that wasn't the case. You had to go out and find some sort of book. Now, I would interpret that as something like a prayer book or a book that somehow reveals a divine mystery or maybe tells a story parable that somehow, you know, grants you that spell ability, but it's the idea is the same whether you're a magic user or a cleric, knowledge equals spells. It's just not automatically delivered. And and I, I think that's an awesome idea. And ironically it's kind of a little bit of how I've interpreted how clerics of first and second level get their spells without having them delivered by an agent of the deity or the deity themselves. And if you're wondering what the heck I'm talking about, go take a look at the Dungeon Master's Guide for AD&D and take a look at how exactly clerics get 3rd and 4th level spells and 5th and 6th level spells. It might add a facet to your campaign that you haven't had before. Anyway, we're talking about OD&D. And so when I explained this to the player, uh, they were surprised, but they 
seemed to like the idea and it, you know we both had a discussion on how our familiarity with the newer versions if you will kind of clouds our interpretation of how OD&D would work you know things work a certain way in AD&D and BX and third edition and you know so on and so on and fifth edition and so there's kind of assumption when you go back to play OD&D that well you know it's the same except it's fantastically not the same and it adds really interesting dimensions so a final discovery I made again in OD&D was uh, last night as I was gearing up to stock my sixth level in my dungeon 23 mega dungeon I was looking at the example dungeon and there's a list of notes and note number eight has an interesting bit to it quote falling into the pit would typically cause damage if a one or two were rolled Otherwise, it would only mean about one turn of time to clamber out, providing the character has spikes or associates to pull him out, and providing the pit wasn't one with a snapshot door and the victim was alone. End quote. And I have to insert a muhahaha to the idea of a pit snapping shut. Now I have to do that. That's awesome. Now, this note is in contradiction with the section on traps later on in book three, where it says traps are usually sprung by a roll of one or two when any character passes over them or by them. Pits will open in the same manner. Now, so this assumption that we've had, you know, that, hey, you walk over a pit and maybe you check to see if it activates if you're not the type that automatically make them activate you know the pc falls bam ouch take a d6 points in damage and and there you go and you know some dms might allow saving throws or dexterity checks but ODD, interestingly enough already kind of has a mechanic for that you know you a pit could cause damage or it could just cause a time delay which in ODD is significant because in the rules as written ODD every turn brings a wandering monster check so if you're delayed a turn having to pull someone out of a pit then that could bring an entire group of monsters on you but it's just interesting that the fact that you could think of it one of two ways i roll a d6 and on one or two the trap springs and then i roll a second d6 to see what happens did they fall in or are they just hanging on the edge alternatively you could have the pit just automatically open on a one or two the player has fully fallen in meaning the pit is fully activated and on anything else they're just hanging there so it kind of depends do you want to do two rolls do you want to do one roll How, how do you interpret it but it's neat to think that there is the ability to do more than just cause damage and I saw that because, again, I'm just reading the rules and I'm really trying hard to put aside my expectations of, and my assumptions and my preconceptions based on, you know, AD&D and and further on, and just take OD&D as it is as a completely new game with all these little neat twists and turns that we haven't run into before. And certainly brings a freshness to my own game and my own experience with it and i hope to the players as well so what do you think um you know if you've read rules that are older and you've put away your preconceptions what have you found it'd be interesting to find out 
All right, so this week I have two call-ins, one from Jason of Nerds RPG Variety Cast and one from Menyon Rob of Confessions of a Wee Timorous Bushi. So first up is Jason. Hey, Michael, Jason here. Congratulations on your 50th episode. Really enjoyed listening to it. The question of why we podcast is an interesting one. and I don't doubt that people would be better off listening to a better podcast than mine. But, you know, there are people who do enjoy listening to my show. And one of the reasons that I keep it going is for that, specifically that. we, With the change in anchor and the ability to call in, call-ins have dropped off. But I still have callers that call in and talk back and forth. And it's almost like an audio blog where the call-ins and the responses are like the comments to a blog entry. And, and I like that feeling of community and being able to foster that. So I think that's the biggest thing keeping me going as far as a podcaster is that interaction. If it wasn't for the calls and the interaction with the callers, I don't think I'd be podcasting, to be honest. Keep up the great work. Take care. And I'll talk to you soon. Hey, thanks, Jason, for calling in. You know, Reaching 50 is not something I thought I'd do, but here we are at episode 51, so we'll see. The long climb to 100, perhaps. So, you know, you were talking about the call-ins and how that's something that really motivates you for doing the type of podcasting you do, which admittedly is different from a lot of other RPG podcasting where it's a pretty static, um, you know, uh, discussion or the podcasters will take comments and questions perhaps from a, a Twitch stream or um, maybe from, you know, whatever social media that they have. But with the podcasters on the service formerly known as Anchor, uh, you know, there is this kind of this direct interaction with the messaging. And, and I kind of admit when I first heard about it, it was kind of scary. Um, you know, blogging and podcasting, I always thought were kind of performative not necessarily a community thing where we're having a conversation like this. And, you know, my shyness and being an Aspie kind of got in the way of me really fully opening up to that. But, you know, I'm going to admit, thanks to you, um, I've gotten pretty comfortable with that, with our back and forth. And, and, and now I've come to like this sort of interaction. You know, it's not something to be feared, and it really is an opening to a great conversation. So thank you for that. And I certainly hope, for one, that you keep finding reasons to keep your podcast going. All right, so next up is Menyon, also known as Rob, from the podcast Confessions of a Wee Timorous Bushy. Hey Chicago Wiz, this is Minion, also known as Rob. It's a long time since we uh, last talked. I've been listening to a few of your uh, latest episodes and it's good to see that you're still plugging away the old school D&D. Um, I believe you're running some old D&D so that you can do the, uh, the uh, dun... Goodness, what is it called? The dungeon... Was it 23? Oh, goodness. The, uh, the, the challenge that's going on this year. I actually bottled out... Um, I just got over really overwhelmed with that, so I I uh, bottled out. But I did uh, enjoy what I, uh, you know, the, the, about a month of it that I did do. It was quite a quite a interesting learning experience for me. Anyway, um, I am still tinkering away with various old editions, you know, from BX to uh, OD and D first edition, AD and D, <coughs> and so on. Um, but um, yeah, it's difficult to get away from that old game, isn't it? Um, for those who those who um, have a connection with it will understand 
why. But I do find myself um, sort of bouncing around using sort of various parts of uh, the different editions, which I guess is not so uncommon, is it? Anyway, uh, good to hear that you're, well, you seem to be well and uh, the games are running. So um, I look forward to hearing some of your in-person game um, sort of uh, play reviews, sort of thoughts, uh, diaries and so on, if you're still playing live games, that is. Uh, by the way, yeah, another reason I was calling was I've managed to get myself into that game um the sci-fi game that you were uh, really seriously involved with, which is No Man's Sky. Oh my goodness, is that game addictive? I don't know what it is about it, um, but it, it is, yeah. Uh, I'm currently playing on the PlayStation 4, and it, it's um, it's great. I, I like the um, the exploration and the discovery, the, the research, all those elements. But I just got into my first space combat, and I was absolutely unable to track the enemy um, and just generally uh, torn to to pieces by the the lasers. So um, any advice on that would be welcome as well. All right. Cheers. Bye-bye. Hey, Rob. Thanks for uh, the message. Rob and I used to chat back and forth a lot um, a while ago, but over COVID, we lost contact. So it's really great to hear from Rob. You know, it, it's interesting, the the energy and the excitement around Dungeon 23 certainly was very high during the month of January, but like anything else, I'm seeing definitely through social media and blog posts and on Reddit that the participation has somewhat died down. Uh, you know, what used to be dozens of posts a day are now maybe 10 to 20 on social media, but I think it's awesome that people still took that opportunity to try something creative and get into it and maybe learn something from it, you know, and and that's time well spent. I think any sort of creativity allows you to express something and that's, I think, kind of what a little bit about life is all about. So Um, I, I... want to agree with you about, you know, making the games our own. You know, it's funny. I, I used to say that my AD&D was just D&D with a whole lot of things mashed together. But as now I'm really focusing on running a OD&D campaign and not quite rules as written, but definitely with trying to keep it in the perspective and mindset of a simple D6-based game you know, focused on kind of the rules as they probably would have been read and interpreted and house ruled back then. I'm I'm getting a feel for the differences, and and I'm also starting to appreciate how lucky I am that something like these games are so adaptable, and that we can bring so many pieces in, and it still seems to work pretty well. Uh, you know, I, I I'm not saying I'm going to become a rules is written. You know, fanatic. Um, I, I have too much fun stealing as much as I can from all the sources of inspiration, but I'm also gaining appreciation for keeping it close to the metal, and it's made me kind of take a step back and understand, do I really need these house rules? Is the rules as written perhaps effective enough, and I just need to spend more time learning them? I don't know. Uh, with, with regards to No Man's Sky, boy, that was, um, No Man's Sky is a hugely, hugely open universe, uh, world 
that is semi uh, MMORPG. Um, uh, it purports to have billions of planets that you can visit and spread across uh, 255 galaxies. And through the dark days of summer of 2020 with COVID, um, No Man's Sky was was something that uh, you know got me through those times. But I had to go back and look because I haven't touched the game since November of, of 2020. Um, I'm goal-oriented. Give me a list, give me a project, and I'm like a laser focused on that. And so my goal in No Man's Sky was to visit all 255 galaxies in the game and leave a base in each galaxy. And doing this is quite an arduous task, and I'm not going to get into it in this podcast, but um, I did manage to do it. And uh, then once I was done with it, I was kind of done with the game. Um, and this is typical of how I play other games. I, another game I spent a whole lot of time in was The Long Dark um, back in 2018, 2019, I think it was. And, uh, you know, I, I did a 500 game day survival sprint and met my goal and I stopped playing it. I haven't picked up the game since, even though it's had later um, additions and, and add-ons and whatnot. And, and same for No Man's Sky. I do hear that No Man's Sky is still up and running, and, and I think that's great, but I just don't have the bandwidth. I'm running three campaigns. I'm trying to get my War Games campaign rolling again. I'm doing all sorts of terrain and 3D printing to do a uh, you know a new version of T1 Rescue of Hamlet game. <laughs> I can't get into another addictive video game. Anyway, thanks for calling in, Rob. I hope we'll get to talk soon. I've left links to Jason and uh, Minion's podcast in my show notes, and I hope you'll give them a listen. And you all are always welcome to message me in whatever format you like and let me know what you think. Okay, that is it for this episode. Thank you for listening, and until next time, game on.